Welcome to another Sunday morning Salvation by Grace message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly in Smyrna, Tennessee. We are currently engaged in a verse-by-verse exposition through the Apostle Paul's letter to the Romans. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. actually going to start a couple verses before Romans 5 for context. I think Romans 5, that big number 5 right there, is an odd division because it is a continuous thought as Paul continues to develop his theology. So now let's quickly review what that theology is so far in the first four chapters of the book of Romans. Because you need to understand the theology of the first four chapters to get what Paul is about to say in chapter 5. Because chapter 5 is going to say that God is really, really gracious to us and then we are going to be identified several different ways and none of them are complementary. We're going to be called sinners. We're going to be called enemies, we're going to be called the godless, godless, sinful enemies, and Paul is going to drive that point home so that he can emphasize the astounding grace that God exercised when he saved people like us. So he began the book of Romans by saying everybody's guilty. He just leveled the playing field 
Jew, Gentile, anybody across the board, we're all guilty. If you were a Jew who was under the law, then the law holds you guilty. The law never justified anybody. The law was put in place to prove the sinfulness of sin. Therefore, everybody who is under the law was proven guilty by the law, which would make the Gentiles say, well, we were never under that law, so we're good, right? And Paul says, and you're not good because you who don't have the law become a law unto yourself, and you still end up breaking your own law by your own conscience. You're still guilty. And then he says, Everybody, across the board, there's none that doeth good. No, not one. There's no one who stirs himself up to seek after God. So once he has laid out the fact that all human beings, the entirety of the human race, is all guilty before God, he then introduces the good news, the gospel news, which is that Jesus by his own grace and not because of anything within us, since there can't be anything within us that could be good or meritorious or could earn God's favor, Jesus came in accordance to the plan of God at the appropriate time. He came to the planet and died for our sinfulness and then was raised for our justification. Now, as we've been talking through the book of Romans, I have said repeatedly the theme of the book of Romans is how can human beings, worms, possibly be justified before a thrice holy God? And Paul has just declared the answer, which is you can't do it. You can't make yourself good enough. You can't clean yourself up enough. Where the law is concerned, according to James, a miss is as good as a mile. If you are guilty of any one infraction of the law, you are guilty of the whole law. You have broken the law top to bottom across the board. You are a guilty sinner before God. You are an enemy before God. You are godless. There's no goodness inside you. I grew up on the theology that said, you know, there's a little spark of good in everybody. And all you have to do is just fan that flame And then goodness will rise up in them and they will choose Jesus and make him Lord and Savior. And that's how you get saved. The Bible says nothing like that. The Bible says you are dead in trespasses and sins. You are fully incapable. And you are, Paul's going to say it a second time here, godless. There's no God in you. That idea that there is some intrinsic goodness inside you is fallacious. It's not biblical. There's nothing good inside you but uncleanness and dead men's bones. Nothing good. And the reason that is such an important foundation to Christianity is that you have to understand your own godless position to understand the astounding grace that it took for God to be willing to kill his own son in your place. When you were an enemy of God, when you were godless, when you were a sinful, depraved wretch, God nevertheless sent his own beloved son to the planet to take on flesh, to die in your place, 
So Paul could say he died because of our sinfulness and then was raised, brought to new life, resurrected for our justification. That's the answer to how you are justified before God. You simply can't do it, so God did it all. God did it across the board. God did it completely. There's not one scintilla of you in the justification process. God justified you. Now, you will, as a consequence of being justified, you will act like it. Your life will change. The things that you used to do, you just simply can't do anymore. You will walk in the good works that God has ordained that you will walk in. That is all true, but that is a reaction to the fact that you've been saved, redeemed, and justified. It is God who did all of that for you, though you were utterly and completely unworthy. And that, my friends, is really good news. Which is why it's called continually the good news, the gospel. And way, way too much of what is called the gospel in modern evangelicalism isn't really all that good news. If they start with, well, you can do it. Just put your best foot forward and you can justify yourself in some meaningful way or you can obligate God. That's not really genuinely good news because it's saying that you, in and of yourself as a human, have the ability to obligate the God who is apparently not in charge of everything because you can change his mind. The really good biblical news is God loved you before the foundation of the world. He knew you before he made you and he knew what you were going to be like when he made you. And as a consequence of loving you beforehand, He then saved you so that you would be eternally in his presence. That's just really, really good news. Now, by the way, Paul is about to say that the love of God is demonstrated in the fact that he sent his son to die for you. Everything that I'm extrapolating on right now is the Pauline theology that we either have read or about to read. So the first four chapters of the book of Romans start with everybody's bad. There, there's your basic theology. If you walk out with nothing else today, if somebody walks up to you and says, what did Jim preach on today? You can say, well, the first thing he pointed out was, we're all bad. We're just bad. We don't have any goodness, any godliness, any truly genuine internal righteousness to take to God. But then the really, really good news of especially like chapter 4 is that Christ died for our sinfulness and was raised for our justification. Therefore, says Paul, we have peace with God. The great eternal judge of the universe, the one who is the judge that will always do right, the one who ought to condemn you, is nevertheless not angry at you. How can you just sit there and stare at me? You should be jumping on chairs at this point. The God of the universe, the judge of everything, is not angry at you. And that's what the word irene means. Peace. 
There is no againstness between you and God. You were at odds with God. You were an enemy of God. And something had to change. And you couldn't change it. Because you don't have the ability. You don't have the power. You can't get to him. You couldn't change the relationship. So he changed it. And the way he changed it was to wipe away your sin debt. Raise his son from the grave for your eternal justification and thereby make peace between you and him. You feeling good yet? I, I don't know about you, but I'm preaching to me right now. And that feels really good to me. Because I know me. I know where I've been. I know what I've done. I know what I think. I know my dark, angry heart naturally. I know what I'm really like. And that the God of forever could create peace between me and him through the death of his son while I was his enemy is astoundingly good news. Overwhelmingly good news. Stand on your chair and shout good news. I'm going to keep saying that till somebody's, never mind. So, all right, thus endeth the introduction. I think we can start in Romans 4. Let's start at verse 22. We have been reading in chapter 4 that righteousness was reckoned to Abram because Abram believed God. God said, you're going to have a son. You and Sarah are going to give birth to a child. Through him, all the families of the earth are going to be blessed. Even though that seemed impossible to both of them, they nevertheless believed God. Paul says that belief in what God said was exchanged in God's economy for righteousness. God imputed righteousness to Abram before He was circumcised before the law was given at Mount Sinai. Before any of those things happened, righteousness was imputed to Abraham in exchange for faith. So Paul says that's the way it's always been. That's the way it still is. And because that's the way it still is, verse 22, therefore also it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Now, Not for his sake only was that written, that it was reckoned to him, but for our sake also, to whom it will be reckoned. What's the it in that sentence? Righteousness is going to be reckoned to us, imputed to us, as those who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. So we believe what God has said, the same way that Abraham believed what God had said. What God has said is, my son's death and resurrection is sufficient for your justification. That's where we put our faith. That is what we believe. That the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ is how we get justified. For that faith, God gives us righteousness. We're the ones to whom righteousness will be reckoned as those who believe. That's the verbal form of have faith in him who raised Jesus, our Lord, from the dead. That would be God who raised him from the dead. He who, that's Jesus, 
was delivered up because of our transgressions and was raised because of our justification. So there's the answer to the question of the whole book. The question is, how can a man be justified before God? The answer is by faith and faith alone. You can't work your way to justification. You can't do enough good stuff to obligate God to justify you. You have to have faith in the finished work of Christ, in the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, in God who sent his son. Once your faith is firmly placed there, God imputes genuine righteousness and justification to you. Now, I know I'm beating this the way you would beat a dead horse, but I want you to see it clearly and understand that there's nothing, nothing, nothing you can do because we are all legalists at heart. We all want to do something. We all want to be able to point at something and say, yeah, but I got that. I did that good thing there, and God gave me some credit there. And then, as I said last week, the really, really good side of this is if God doesn't give you extra credit for your good work, then he doesn't give you demerits for your bad work. That's really, really good news. You have been utterly, completely justified by the finished work of Christ. And he saved you knowing you were going to be like that. Now, do we as Christians strive toward a better life, a holier life? Absolutely. But as I said earlier, that is a reaction to the fact that we are justified. That is not how we get justified. Are we clear on that? Yes. Outgrowth. Say it again. The outgrowth of the Spirit that it, has been planted in us. Absolutely. And until that Spirit is planted in you. There's nothing in you to grow good. Uh, completely agree. Ladies and gentlemen, Gladys is back. Okay. <laughs> well, you know, it's just like my biology teacher made it clear. There has to be something happen outside the mother's body for the mother to bring forth a child. Something has to happen to our corrupt body. Something spiritual. Something holy has to be placed in our sinful, corrupt bodies for something eternal and good and spiritual to come out. So finally, that takes us to chapter 5. We are finally to the new stuff. Chapter 5 starts with, therefore, which is why I couldn't start right at chapter 5. You can't start anything on, therefore. I couldn't stand up here and begin by saying, and in conclusion. And first, I have to tell you what we're talking about. Now, Paul has built up all of this theology so he can say, therefore, having been justified. Now, this is that phrase that he's going to use several different times in order to say how we ought to Understand the grace of God that has done these marvelous things for us. But it's all predicated on having been justified. Because the justification that took place at Calvary is a done deal. That's finished. 
in the courts of heaven, you are already justified. So being justified, that's the position that Paul takes with you. You are now already justified. He's already laid out his case. He's already proven that Jesus justified the ungodly through faith. Now, if you have faith, now that you are justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So that peace doesn't come from our striving to be really, really good. That peace doesn't come from us going to God and saying, look, I got this. I did all this because Isaiah says all our righteousnesses are filthy rags, filthy, bloody, dirty rags. And you think you're going to take that to God and obligate him with your filthy rags. Well, you can't do it. Instead, through faith in Jesus Christ, you have been justified, and that is why you have peace with God. Anybody here have trouble sleeping? I know lately with these relentless headaches, sleeping's been tough for me. But you know, when I have trouble sleeping, I just muse on the fact that I have actual peace with God. And if you have peace with God, it doesn't matter what Leon thinks of you. Because I checked with him earlier, and he doesn't like a lot of you. No, that's a joke. It doesn't matter what the world thinks of you. It doesn't matter what your enemies think of you. It doesn't matter what the people on Facebook think of you. It doesn't matter what anyone thinks of you. If God's okay with you, you're okay. Amen. If God's all right with you and you're at peace with God, then you know that when you launch out into eternity, you're going to a really good place. You're going to a place where there's joy eternal. And you can look forward to that knowing that you're never going to have to stand in front of God and give an account for the sinfulness that is you. Even though you are sinful and wretched and an enemy, even though you are godless, you're never going to have to answer for any of that because Christ as your substitute is also your advocate who is pleading your case every time that you do sin. You are so phenomenally saved that you were chosen before the foundation of the world, redeemed and justified in time, and your advocate is in heaven right now making sure that it's always going to be okay between you and God. That's the kind of peace you've got going. You feel good yet? Yes. Despite knowing that Leon doesn't think much of you? You feel good? Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom, that's through Christ, through whom also we have obtained, now the New American Standard says, our introduction by faith into this grace. Now we're going to have to pick this apart a little bit. Some of the most trustworthy old Greek manuscripts don't have by faith right there. What they say is, through whom, through Jesus, we obtained our introduction into this grace in which we stand. 
Now, let me pick apart this phrase, this idea of we have obtained our introduction into this grace in which we stand. He's used a particular Greek word that the translation, if we were going to translate it with several words, would be that we have obtained the privilege of approach. In other words, if you were called to go to the White House, you can't just go there, try it, just go there and just show up at the gate and say, hi, it's me, I'd like to talk to Donald, please. Uh, They're not going to let you in. They have whole battalions of people guarding him to make sure that you and I can't just get to him anytime we want. But if we receive a letter inviting us to the White House, what we have is the privilege of approaching the White House. You got the picture? That's the Greek word that Paul is using here. He is saying, through Christ, we have obtained this privilege of approaching the grace of God. Isn't that great? Isn't that wonderful? That we, by nature, being enemies, being sinners, being godless, we cannot just burst into God's presence. Nor can we just burst into the arena of grace and say, well, now God is obligated to be kind and gracious to me simply because I'm here. What you need is a go-between. What you need is somebody to make it okay for you to approach God. This is the same idea that lies behind the notion of praying in Christ's name. We sinners, we depraved people, have no approach to God. He is holy. We have no right to just storm into his presence and start telling him what we want and what we think. But through Christ, we have the privilege to approach God, to speak to him, to pray with him about the things that we're thankful for and the things that we desire and the blessings that we've had. We have this privilege of approaching him through Christ, in Christ's name, by Christ's authority. It is the authority of Christ that allows us to go to God. And it is the finished work of Christ and faith in Christ that gives us the privilege to approach the grace of God. As a consequence, Paul can say, we run to the throne of God crying, Abba, Father. We run to the grace of God. We run to God saying, you're my Father. How did we get that privilege of approaching him that way? Because Jesus made it okay. This is why the whole Jesus thing is so important to us eternally. Growing up, I was taught that we worship God, we sing to God, we pray to God, but I wasn't clear where Jesus fit into all that. But it is through Christ, through his finished work, through his atoning work, that we have the privilege of even approaching God. You get that? So Paul says, through whom, through Christ, we have obtained our privilege of approach into this grace in which we now stand. 
So we've been talking about grace. We talk about grace a lot here. We're Grace Christian Assembly. Our website, Salvation by Grace. We talk grace, 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 grace. Every time we talk about grace, the big neon sign in your brain ought to say, through Christ. It is Christ who obtained that grace for you. We stand by grace. We stand with our feet firmly planted in. We can't do it. It has to be grace. It has to be God. It has to be all God. The only reason we know that, the only reason we believe it and stand in it is because Christ accomplished the work that gave us the privilege to approach that grace. You got it? I feel good because right at that moment, I looked back there and Marie was nodding. And I went, oh, good. One person got it. I hope the rest of you got it. Afterwards, if you're confused about it, check with Marie. So that takes us to verse 3. Now, all of this goodness and this grace and this kindness and this love all feels really, really good to us. We're really glad for all that. But now Paul is going to flip the script. I'm so hip when I say stuff like that. He's going to flip the script on us. And say, not only do we exalt in the hope of the glory of God, which is the end of verse 2, but he's going to say not only this, but we also exalt, exact same word, which simply means we rejoice. So we rejoice not only in the hope of the glory of God, but we rejoice in our tribulations. Even when life gets hard, when life gets difficult, we rejoice in that, which is one of the peculiarities of Christianity. Christianity, rightly understood, allows people to even rejoice in the tough times of life. You can only do that if you know that God is sovereign and that the things that come into your life are for your good and his glory. So let's start with the first exaltation. At the end of verse 2, it says, we exalt in the hope the word hope there is the word el peace. It doesn't mean, gosh, I hope this happens the way that children might hope for a bicycle at Christmas. That's not the word in the Greek language. What it is is a confident expectation of what you know is going to happen. That's why Paul would say the return of Christ, which we know is going to happen, is also our blessed hope. We know it's coming but we look forward to the fact that it's coming. We look forward to it with anticipation. Okay, that's the same way that Paul is using the word here. We have the hope of the glory of God. That's not something that we hope exists. Gee, I hope that there's a heaven. Gee, I hope that there's glory out there. No, I look forward to the confident expectation of everything that God has already told us does exist. We don't see it yet. We're not there yet, but I'm really looking forward to it. Okay, that's the word El Peace. So we exult, we rejoice in the confident looking forward to the glory of God. And if he had stopped right there, I'd have been happy. I was like, good enough. I exult. I rejoice in the fact that God is good and he saved me and there's grace and it's all good. Good, good, good. Stop now, Paul. He could have put his pen down right there. I'd have been good. No. But he goes on to say, and not only this, 
but we also rejoice in our tribulations, the trials of this life, the tribulum, that's the Latin word. The word means the squeezing, the pressure of life. It's that word thalipsis in the Greek that means the difficulty that squeezes in on you and and forms you, remakes you. The trouble, the tribulation of life. And here's why we could exult in the tribulations of this life. Because we know that tribulation brings about perseverance. I'll give you all three parts of this sentence that he's constructing here. He says, tribulation brings about perseverance. Perseverance brings about proven character. Proven character brings about hope. And hope does not make ashamed. And that's why we exult in the tribulations. But let's take this word by word for just a moment. We exult in our tribulations because we know that tribulation brings about perseverance, which is the idea of just keep going, get through it. This is very similar to what Paul writes to the Corinthians when he says, there's no trial, no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but will with the temptation provide a way of escape that you may bear it. So this is the same idea here, that the tribulations, the trials, the difficulties of this life build into you a perseverance where you will trust God and just keep moving forward. That process of trusting God and moving forward brings about proven character. The word, I've translated the word before as triedness. In other words, through these trials, through these tribulations, it builds character into you by the things that you've been tried by. The difficulties of this life successively prove to you that you will get through it. And as a consequence, when the next trial comes, you have confidence going into it because you know that God has preserved you through the previous ones. Therefore, you know confidently that he's going to preserve you through this one. The one that he doesn't preserve you through is the one that takes you home. So you win either way. But whatever the trials are that come your way, know by looking back at the things God has already brought you through that he's also going to bring you through this. And that creates proven character and that proven character produces hope. And that hope is the confident looking forward to what you know is going to happen. You get it? So in order to build confidence, the expectation, the looking forward into you, God takes you through tribulations and trials. Now, if you're a Christian, if you bear the name Christ and you've never gone through tribulation or trials, wait a little longer because it's coming. For you young people, you kids who haven't gone through any big difficulties in life yet, live a little longer. Because God will take you through those things, but he's not taking you through it because he doesn't love you. 
He's taking you through it because he loves you so much that he's going to make you into the person that you're going to become. And the way that he does that in you is by taking you through the difficulties, the trials, the squeezing of life. And that produces in you this kind of triedness that produces hope. And that hope does not ever make you ashamed. Shows you how strong you are. Shows you how strong you are. The fact that you can look forward to the glory of God. The fact that you can look forward to the glories of heaven. The fact that you can look forward to God sustaining you through this life and through eternity. The fact that you believe that is a gift from God that he doesn't just deposit into you all at once. It's a gift from God that he trains you in. That he teaches you over the course of this lifetime. Which is why you serve out your time in the flesh before you go serve out your time in the spirit. He is teaching you faith and hope and all of the best qualities of spiritual life and spiritual nature. And he's teaching that to you by buffeting your flesh. Not only this. We also exult in our tribulations knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance. And perseverance brings about proven character. And proven character brings about hope. And hope does not disappoint. Why? Because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. The Holy Spirit is granted by God. The Holy Spirit infills those people whom he has loved since before the foundation of the world. The very fact that we have the Holy Spirit produces the faith that he's going to grant us righteousness in exchange for. And all of that is a demonstration of the love of God who is pouring out that love in our hearts by the demonstration of what he's done for us. Does that all make sense? Yes. Or have I overcomplicated what should really be simple? I have that gift. <laughs> because, because, okay, I said all of that just to get you to verse 6. Because, because while we were still helpless, there's another word for us. While we were helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the good and well-able. Is that what it says? No, it's not what it says. No, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Thank you, Jesus. How ungodly? Helpless. We were incapable of helping ourselves. We were godless. There was no God in us. There was no capability to be righteous or good or holy. There was none of that within us, and yet at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Back in chapter 4, verse 5, it says, But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, then his faith is reckoned for righteousness. You see, Paul keeps saying this about us. We are godless. We are not holy. We are not good. We are not righteous. But the hope that God placed in us by his love, by his Holy Spirit, is a demonstration to us 
that God loved us so much he would, at the proper time, send his son to die for the genuinely godless. Which is why Jesus would say things like, well, men don't seek a physician. People who are doing fine don't need a savior. But we who know our godless state and who also know that there's a righteous judge of the universe, what are we going to do? How are we going to satisfy him? We can't, we can't, we can't. He did it all, and he did it at the right time, and he did it by justifying the ungodly through the death of his son. So never forget that in this equation, you are the ungodly. And don't start thinking that he saved you or chose you because you were the good one. He saved me. He chose me because I did that thing. Because I have great attendance at Sunday school. You know, don't think that there's anything within you that caused God to say, I got to have him. Heaven wouldn't be heaven without him. No, he never thought that about anybody because he sent his son to gain the ungodly. Am I beating this to death yet? None of Adam's descendants. He's going to get there. Wait, stop reading ahead. Verse 7, for one would hardly die for a righteous man. If you're righteous, if you're holy, if you're good, if you can justify yourself, why would Jesus die for you? He wouldn't need to die for you if you were fine. He had to die for you because you were ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good man someone might even dare to die. In other words, if someone burst into your house with a gun, you might jump in front of your child and say, take me. But, you know, that's a child. Don't. So someone might be willing to die for someone they love, for someone they find goodness or someone that they cherish. But, but God demonstrates his own love, that love that he shed abroad in our hearts through the Holy Spirit. He demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners... Christ died for us. Christ died for us while we were godless, while we were helpless, while we were sinners. He died for us to prove the love of God, to prove how genuine that gracious love is. So much so that the God who does not change loved you enough to write your name down in the Lamb's book of life before the foundation of the world, then at the proper time, send his son, pour out his wrath on his son in your place, give you justification in exchange for your faith in the son, put that faith in you by his own Holy Spirit, who he put in you, to share the love of God abroad in your heart, which he demonstrated by the very fact that while you were still sinful, an enemy, nevertheless, Christ died. Are you feeling good yet? Yes. Okay, so quick question. Micah, so far in this good news we've read, uh, which part did you do? (laughs) You did the sinning part. Yeah. Everything else that God done, God did. And he did it for what reason? To show you his love. That's pretty amazing. Anybody here, after reading all that, want to take some credit? Anybody, I guess I should put my hand down. Any, anybody think 
Yeah, God chose me because I'm the good one. I'm really scoring points in the afterlife right now. Anybody think that? Because the language that Paul keeps using is derogatory language for you and gracious, exalting language of God. So God does it all. You are just merely the recipient of this amazing grace. God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than, much more than, much more than just being justified while you're sinners. Much more than having now been justified. There's that phrase again. Keeps bringing it up. We're already justified. What happened at Calvary is a done deal. That's a historic fact. Nothing can change that. Time and history can't alter that. You have been justified. So much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. Really nothing? Good news. Nothing? You got nothing for that? You got... You got nothing? You just, no, yeah. No, that's a fact. You've gotten too used to God. You've gotten too used to the gospel. You've gotten too used to the word of God. If you can hear that and go, yeah, what else you got? This is astounding that now we not only have been justified, but knowing that we are justified, we will be saved from the wrath of God. Now think through that for just a moment. Because when you ask people, what are you being saved from? They will usually think, well, I'm being saved from hell. Or I'm being saved from my sin. No, no, you're not. You're being saved from God and his judgment and his wrath. That's what you're being saved from. Yes, you may wind up in hell. Who sends you there? God. Yes, your sin may be the reason he sends you to hell. Who does it? God. God who is the judge. God who is the righteous one. God who is full of anger and wrath, which is as much a part of his holy character as his love and grace are. You are being saved from the wrath of God so that you only experience the grace of God. And all of that is a result of the fact that he loved you enough to send his son to redeem you. And now that you have been justified, you are guaranteed, you can hope confidently that when you die, you're going to be saved. You're fine. You're good with God. Saved eternally from the wrath of God. Now let me add also, eschatologically, The time of the end, the time of the tribulation, the day of the Lord is referred to as the wrath of God, which it is. It's the very wrath of God. It's one of the reasons that I keep arguing we can't be here. We can't go through the wrath of God. Otherwise, we're saying that the justification of Christ was not enough to keep us from the wrath of God. But Paul states it emphatically that we are justified and having been justified, we are therefore saved. From the wrath of God. For if. Paul is going on. For if. While we were. Enemies. Are you feeling it yet? We are helpless. We are godless. We are enemies. For if. 
While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Think that one through. When you were reconciled to God through the death of his son, which was something that happened 2,000 years ago outside Jerusalem, when that fact of history occurred and you were reconciled to God, when that happened, you were an enemy of God. He didn't reconcile you because you were so reconcilable. He didn't reconcile you because you were doing so well. He didn't look at your works and say, well, good enough. Let's reconcile that guy. He reconciled you while you were a godless, helpless enemy. Do you see the language Paul is using? He's using it on purpose to point out you're nothing. You've got nothing to take to God. But take your nothing and add Jesus everything. And suddenly, you become a trophy of God's grace, and you become valuable to him to demonstrate his own love and grace. And the only value you have is the value you got through your association with Christ, whoever loved you. That's where human value comes from. But if, while we were enemies, We were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more than having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only this, you thought I was done, didn't you? You saw me put my bookmark right there and you thought I was done. Paul's not done. As if this weren't enough good news. And not only this. But we also rejoice, we also celebrate, we also exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received, past tense, have already received the reconciliation. The reconciling between us and God has already been accomplished. And though you are helpless and an enemy, and though you are a sinner by nature, Though you are a godless human being, nevertheless, you are reconciled with God. It's an already done deal. It's an accomplished fact. You can't add anything to it. It's given to you as an act of grace to demonstrate the love of God. That is why you are already justified in the courts of heaven. And that is why you can know confidently and hope looking forward to the glory of God and the glory of heaven. Because you know that everything that's necessary for your full, complete salvation has already been Accomplished. All you got to do is believe it. All you got to do is have faith in the finished work of Christ. That is the Pauline theology. That is the Genesis theology. All the charges against you are dropped. So the language of the Bible is clear. The language of the Bible is continuous. The language of the Bible is constant. This is the theology of salvation. There is no other theology of salvation. This is the only one. This is the only thing the Bible says about how you get justified. This is the only thing the Bible offers us. Now human beings, because they're sinful, make up a bunch of other stuff. Silly stuff. Ridiculous stuff. Where you justify yourself on the basis of your own merit and your own do-good and your own genuflect and your own 
whatever. You do your stuff, and then you're going to get justified. Real justification is a result of God being kind and gracious to you and exchanging your faith, which he granted you, exchanging that for your justification and your righteousness. And that is really, really good news, and it's the only good news the Bible preaches, which is why we keep saying it and saying it and saying it. All right, are there any questions about the sermon you've heard this morning, either from me or from Gladys? Are there any questions? (laughs) Did you have your hand up? Mm-hmm. But you don't preach that, and I don't think the scriptures preach that either. It, it, it doesn't matter so much if I preach that. It matters whether the scriptures say that. And I agree with you. There, there's only one authority. There's only one sovereign. Yeah. Yes, sir, Leon. And you mentioned the silly ideas that men come yeah. up with. I had an experience this week where just helping a friend, and they said to me, you have no idea how many heaven points you have earned. Oh. And I laughed out loud and I I realized they were serious. And I thought, wow, I believe that. That they had a literal name for it. Heaven points. points. Yeah. I thought, oh, my goodness. Wow. It was very awkward for a second, but I thought, I'm going to let that sit. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you weren't bad if he said, what about all the... You have no idea how many hell points. So true. Especially the way you go around not liking people. And so, there's no excuse for me, and I'm sorry. I apologize for that. Anything else? Yes. But you just, you had said that you keep going over and over these same points. We don't get tired of hearing it. Oh, I'm glad to hear that. Yeah, thank you for that. I know I don't get tired of hearing it because most Sundays I'm up here preaching to me. You all just happen to be in the room. So. <laughs> thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace morning message. We invite you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for weekly updates, books, Q&As, and our ever-expanding audio archive. Join us again next time as we delve into the Word of God and study His sovereign grace.